former middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Well, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Mindful Math Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Allison, and today I want to talk with you about the idea of math rigor. And what is math rigor? I feel like the term rigor is thrown around quite a bit, and it doesn't always mean the same thing to everybody. So I wanted to just share with you my understanding of what math rigor is and what it is not. Okay, so according to, this is from Achieve the Core, this is who I learned about the three shifts of the Common Core Standards from. And quick reminder, the three shifts are focus, coherence, and rigor. And what is meant by rigor is really this balance or combination of three different aspects of rigor. The first one is conceptual understanding. Next one is procedural skill and fluency. And finally, application and problem-solving skills. And the truth is that for students to truly be ready for college, career, and math in the real world, students need all three of these. They need to understand the very important math concepts. They need to be able to, you know, use skills quickly, fluently accurately, and they need to be able to problem solve. So I don't think there's many people who would argue with that statement. But there are a couple of misconceptions when it comes to this word rigor. And I actually have heard some people say they wish that this term rigor wasn't the term used to describe the third shift because it does mean so many different things to so many people. So if that word is tripping you up, I don't know, maybe don't use it. Maybe just talk about the balance of understanding skill and problem solving or something like that. You don't have to use that word if you don't want to. But from this point on in this podcast and in any other episodes or things you've seen of mine, when I'm talking about rigor, this is what I'm talking about. Okay, so let's talk about what rigor is not. One of the biggest misconceptions about rigor is that it means either harder or faster. So it doesn't mean we're just making problems more difficult just for the sake of making them more difficult. 
It also doesn't mean that we're trying to move students through standards and skills as fast as humanly possible. It's not about teaching students above grade level work. It's not about trying to complete two grade levels in one year. Instead, it's really about understanding math at a deep level, about thinking flexibly, and about using reasoning to solve problems. With that, I also want to mention that rigorous math classrooms do not all have to look the same. They can look different from one another. This is not a one-size-fits-all kind of situation. However, I will say that they do have a few things in common. I believe that every classroom that would fall under this heading of a rigorous classroom would include these three things. Number one, consistent opportunities for students to engage in grade level work, right? So rigorous classroom, the teacher is teaching the standards that fall within their grade level, within their course, and that is the majority of what students are spending their time on. Secondly, the tasks are aligned to the language of the standards. What that means is that we're paying attention to what the verb in the standards says. We're not making every topic that comes up procedural, which unfortunately happens more often than I personally would like to see. The tasks align to the language of the standards, and that means we're really paying attention to what that verb at the beginning of the standards says. Are students meant to interpret the idea? Are they explaining? Are they solving? What are they being asked to do connected to the the mathematical topic? So if it's about fractions, what are we doing with fractions? Are we solving them? Are we interpreting them? Are we explaining something about them? Are we recognizing something? Are we fluently adding them? Those are all different things. And so we want to really pay attention to the language of the standards and what angle we're kind of coming from in terms of that topic, right? So thinking back to that conceptual understanding, procedural skill and fluency and application, where are we in those aspects of rigor? And then thirdly, students are the ones doing more of the thinking, talking, reasoning, and explaining than the teacher. If a classroom consistently includes these three things, I would categorize it as a rigorous classroom. Now, I thought it might be helpful to think a little bit about some non-math examples in order to illustrate the point about these different aspects of rigor, why they're important, how they work together, and also to start shedding some light and really give you some food for thought about what this means about our instructional approaches and how they will likely vary depending on which aspect of rigor you're really focusing on. As I was thinking about the topic of math rigor and just how the three aspects of rigor work together but are also distinct, I started thinking about how we learn things and just in our day-to-day lives and how we help our children learn things. And I started thinking about things like learning to crawl, learning to walk, learning to tie your shoes, learning to do laundry, and trying to sort of dissect each of those circumstances and and which of those tasks really require an understanding of certain concepts, which ones are really more about a skill and a procedure, and which ones are really 
you know, more similar to problem solving. So I want to share some of my thoughts with you, and I think it'll bring some clarity and give you some food for thought around what the aspects of rigor are and how we can approach teaching different math topics in different ways. The thing that actually got me thinking about math rigor in this way was the experience that I had as a part of teaching our kids to learn to ride a bike. And my daughter and my son, they're 18 months apart, and so they actually learned to ride bikes around the same time. And it was a couple of summers ago that my husband put the pedals on their bikes, and I took them out, and within five minutes, both of them were just pedaling down the street, huge smiles on their faces, and just enjoying themselves riding their two-wheel pedal bikes. And I was thinking about my own experience learning to ride a bike and how it was not that easy. It was not that graceful of an experience. And I want to tell you a little bit about just the difference in approach. So when I learned to ride a bike, my parents gave me a two-wheel bike and put training wheels on, which was very typical at the time and probably still is typical, you know, in this day and age. And Then after a while, my dad like changed how the the training wheels were so that one of them was like hanging off the ground. And so I recall that I would be like biking down the street and just sort of tipping from one side to the other, but still relying on one of those training wheels. And then finally, it was the time to take the training wheels off. And it was like this big jump from going from the training wheels to no training wheels. And I remember feeling very scared and falling over quite a bit. But my own kids didn't experience any of that. And the reason for that was that my husband is an avid bike rider. And so he insisted that we buy them balance bikes. And so when they were three and four years old, Santa brought them their balance bikes. And it was the kind of bike that actually transitioned into a pedal bike which is why the day they learned to ride the pedal bike, you know, we had hooked up those pedals and finally attached them. But prior to that, they had spent about two and a half years riding these balance bikes. And if you're not familiar with a balance bike, what it is, is it's basically a two-wheel bike um, with no pedals. And what the kids do is they, you know, they just push on the ground with their feet. And then there's like these little footholds where you can pull your feet up and rest them on the little footholds for one to two seconds at a time in order to learn how to balance. And it occurred to me this day when I was watching them just pedaling down the block, just like it was nothing, how those two and a half years had really set them up for success in this moment. And immediately what went through my mind was this connection to mathematical rigor, specifically the connection between conceptual understanding and how that so naturally flows into and enables procedural skill and fluency to come. And in this case, you know, the concept was balance. They had to master balancing on a two-wheel bike. It wasn't about the pedaling. It was about that balance piece. And once they had that, the pedaling on the bike was like nothing. That was just the tiniest jump from doing what they'd been doing before to now pedaling. And 
I see so many parallels to moving from conceptual understanding into procedural skill and fluency when I'm thinking about the addition and subtraction progression within the NBT domain, you know, the number and operations in base 10. It just feels like such an obvious connection because once students have that deep understanding of place value, it's such an easy transition for them to add numbers. And, you know, you can start with single digits, move into two digits, and pretty soon students will be solving three-digit and four-digit addition problems really with no explicit instruction. And that's because if they really understand this concept of place value and composing and decomposing numbers, they can do it with any number whether it's two digits, three digits, four digits, with a lot of ease. You may have seen this yourself with your students. And oftentimes it'll take a while. I've been working with some teachers this year and they were in a unit on fractions that had a lot around conceptual understanding. And then all of a sudden, so many things had just clicked. And they were sharing anecdotes of different students who were able to really solve the problems really fluently because they were applying their understanding to the problems and it was kind of felt like magic. And I shared this story with them and I said, you know, this often happens. Like we put in a lot of time around building students' conceptual understanding and their deep knowledge of ideas like place value and the operations and things like that. And then one day you'll see it pay off. And they'll be able to just move into that procedural skill and fluency often very quickly. Another example that comes to mind is solving equations. As a former middle school math teacher, solving equations was one of our big rocks. And I found that once students really understood the concepts of what it meant to solve an equation, how to keep equations balanced, what solutions were, and how you could really know if the answer you came up with was a true solution, and how to use the properties of operation, it really didn't matter if we were solving one-step equations, we're moving into two-step equations, we're moving into multi-step equations. They became really proficient with that so long as they had that deep understanding of all those concepts. Now let's contrast this with another day-to-day situation, another life skill that we all had to learn at one point, and that I'm in the process of teaching my children right now, which is tying a shoe. I don't know about you, but my approach to teaching my kids how to tie their shoes has been much more procedural. I'm doing a lot of modeling, and I'm showing them step-by-step what I'm doing. Other than explaining to them the importance of tying their shoes and why it's important to not have your shoelaces untied because you'll trip on them. There's not really any deep conceptual understanding that I feel like they need to know. It really just is about the steps. And okay, first, put your foot in. Second, pull the tongue so that it's nice and straight. Third, get the, the laces tight like all the way up. Four, you know, cross it over and put it under. And then either make the bunny ears and tie them or do the like one loop and pull it around and push it through. That's it. And so, and so when I think about that kind of skill, or another one I came up with was doing laundry. There's a number of steps there, and you might teach your kids to, you know, sort the laundry by color. And if you're doing the whites, put it on this temperature. If you're doing 
the reds, do it on this temperature, you know, pour the detergent into this line, put it in and push these buttons. Again, I don't think there's that much deep understanding that goes into it. Maybe a little bit about like if you buy a new clothing item, you might want to wash it by itself. But even that, I guess, could go under the category of rules and steps. Now, here's what I'll say. I think these kind of real life activities and real life kind of skills don't really connect to any of the three aspects of rigor. I truly believe that strong procedural skill and fluency is built from deep conceptual understanding. And so all of the fluency standards that you'll find, they have roots in conceptual understanding. If you look at the grade levels that come before any of the fluency standards, you will see this methodical, intentional building of the concept ahead of the fluency standard. But the connection I see is that sometimes within a standard or within a group of standards, there is some knowledge, some skills, or some vocabulary that really can just be explicitly taught and that students need in order to do the standard, in order to master it, in order to understand it, in order to execute. And so one example of that might be something like using a protractor. So in fourth grade, there's a measurement and data standard. It's 4MD6 which says measure angles in whole number degrees using a protractor, sketch angles of specified measure. So this is a case where I feel like you will probably use some modeling, use some explicit instruction here to say, hey kids, this is a protractor, this is how you look at it, this is how you read it, and this is how you can use it to draw angles and measure angles. But I did want to draw a distinction here because in my mind, using a protractor, that is more of a skill. It's not something I would put in this bucket of like procedural skill and fluency. And you can find the fluency standards by reading the standards. They start with the word fluently. But also, if you go to Achieve the Core and look at those focus by grade level documents, they have called out the fluencies for each grade level over to the side. So that's how you'll know when it's a true fluency standard. And that means it's the end of a long progression that has been building up to that point. And it's kind of the culmination there of how, you know, we've introduced these concepts and they've been working towards it. And now at this grade level, they're finally expected to be accurate and fluent with that procedure. Let's talk about another scenario. This one came up recently when I was trying to help my son learn how to blow bubbles with his bubble gum. My daughter Livy figured it out. And she's been blowing bubbles now for a couple of months. And Otto's just getting more and more frustrated that he cannot blow bubbles like his sister. So we were driving in the car and I found myself just trying to break it into steps for him. And it sounded something like this. Okay, Otto, you know, take your tongue and try to put the gum on the end of your tongue and then slowly with your teeth, you know, use them to kind of comb the gum backwards around your tongue. <laughs> and he's just like, what? <laughs> you know, he didn't get it. And he's, he has yet to blow a bubble. But again, what popped into my mind was how laughable this kind of was and the connection to teaching math. 
and specifically the idea of problem solving and application. I see so many moments in classrooms that remind me of this. Moments when students are presented with a problem solving task or a word problem and they don't know how to do it. And so the teacher tries to walk them through it step by step, just like I was doing with Otto, trying to explain like how to get the gum around your tongue in order to blow a bubble. And the truth is that's not an effective way to learn how to blow a bubble. The way you learn how to blow a bubble is by playing around with the gum in your mouth and figuring it out. It's the same reason that when kids are learning to walk, we don't sit them down in front of a PowerPoint and try to explain to them how to like move one foot in front of the other and transfer their weight and all this kind of stuff. It just, it's not how you learn to do certain kinds of things. You learn to walk as a kid by walking, right? <laughs> you, you might start with like holding on furniture and then trying to take one step or two steps, but you have to really do it to learn it. And so many things in life are like that. I think about that with learning to feed yourself. I have a blog post I wrote called The Magic is in the Mess. And I will link to it in the show notes, but it was the same kind of scenario where, you know, we were a little bit hesitant at first to let our kids try to feed themselves with the spoon because it was just so messy. (laughs) They would just get it everywhere. And I don't really like messes and neither does my husband. In fact, he likes messes less than me. So eventually I helped him see that unless we wanted to go to college with them and spoon feed them, like we were going to have to let them develop that skill. And the way they would develop that skill is by doing it. Again, not by us trying to break it down step by step and saying, okay, hold it this way. Now dip it in. Now do this, right? You just, you learn to do it by doing it. And I really think that is how it goes with problem solving. We have to let our kids really sink their teeth into those word problems. Let them try it. Let them fall down. Again, going back to kids, like, What if you were trying to help your kids learn to walk and never fall? That's what we're doing sometimes when we're presenting students with true tasks and true problems. It's like we're trying to prevent them from ever making a mistake by walking them through it, by telling them what to do step by step, by asking them funneling questions that lead them to only come up with correct answers one step at a time. And Yes, that might lead them to the correct answer, but that is not actually growing their problem-solving skills, which is what those application standards are all about. And if we don't let them become true problem-solvers, they're actually not going to be ready for college, career, or the real world because that is one of the legs of the rigor stool. We've got conceptual understanding, procedural skill and fluency, and application and problem-solving. So I want to leave you with a couple of tips before we close out. One is about how to know and how to identify which aspect or aspects of rigor a standard is targeting or a standard is really trying to get at. And the other is how to vary your instructional approach and your instructional strategies based on that information. Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple of key words to look for that indicate each of the aspects of rigor. Let's start with conceptual understanding. For conceptual understanding, if you see the words understand, reason, explain, 
or interpret, you can be pretty sure that that standard is targeting conceptual understanding. Some of the best ways to help students develop conceptual understanding is to let them touch the math, so use manipulatives, see the math, so use visual models, and discuss the math, talk about the math. So having those turn-in talks, having those five practices lessons where they see multiple representations and they're allowed to use a lot of different strategies, and then they have that conversation with one another. All of those are really great ways to help students create a really strong you know, mental picture and understanding of what the concept means. Another thing you can do is give students the opportunity to critique one another's reasoning. And so you can share different solutions and ask students, do they agree? Do they disagree? Do they see any instances of flawed logic or errors? And then explain how they think about it. For procedural skill and fluency, you're going to want to look for the words fluently, read, write, and evaluate. Once you've determined that a standard is targeting procedural skill and fluency, a couple of strategies that you'll want to include in your instruction are, first of all, connecting that procedure to the concept. So making sure you're not siloing procedural skill and fluency from conceptual understanding, but rather that you're building through that progression and you're building on from what they understand about place value, fractions, division, multiplication, whatever it is. In addition, I would I think this is a really appropriate place to integrate more explicit instruction. Teacher modeling, doing some think alouds, sometimes where you do walk through a procedure together step by step and you help students see what those steps are, name the steps, maybe write them down in their notes. And then I would give them a lot of time to practice and a lot of opportunities to practice. With that procedural skill and fluency, this is the time where, you know, you can play games, you can be really creative with the different ways, but you want them to have a lot of at-bats. Another thing that you can do that does get into deeper thinking is error analysis. So you can have students find and explain where a procedural mistake is. This is great to do with those mistakes that are very, very common. It will help them become more conscious of it so that hopefully they can avoid making that mistake themselves. And then finally, you'll know that it's an application standard if you see the words word problem, real world, or multi-step. Those are very clear indications that we're getting into problem-solving mode here, and it's an application standard. So when it comes to these, this is where you really want to try to hold yourself back from walking them through it and giving them a procedure or giving them a specific strategy to use or a step-by-step process. You want to let them dive in and see what they come up with. Because again, it's the only way they are going to become really strong problem solvers. An image that always comes to my mind is if I want to get stronger and if I want to get more fit, I need to be the one running on the treadmill. I need to be the one going to the dance class or the spin class. I'm not going to get fit sitting on my bike watching the spin instructor pedal faster and faster. So it's the same thing. If you find yourself holding the marker, holding the pencil, holding the chalk, doing a lot of the problem solving, then that's your skill that's getting better, not your students. So I'd really encourage you when you see those application standards and you see those words, these are the things you're going to want to make sure are 
guiding how you structure your lessons. And I have three of them. Number one, giving your students the opportunity to solve the problem. So providing time for them to work on the task independently. They can do it with a partner. They can do it in small groups. Secondly, sharing multiple solution methods. This is awesome to do following that problem-solving time. So now you give students a chance to come up and share. How did you approach it? Ask them to explain. Ask them to justify. Compare different strategies and different solution methods. And then third, this is a perfect time to intentionally integrate content. So when it comes to application, you're going to be pulling in those concepts. They're going to be using those skills. And a lot of times they're going to be doing that across standards, across domains, across topics. It's really a great time for students to apply their knowledge of multiple standards and clusters and domains and for you to see how deeply they really understand the math and their ability to problem solve and apply it into a new setting. All right, y'all. So that is what I have for you today. I hope this brought some clarity to what math rigor is, what math rigor isn't, what the three aspects of rigor are, and how they work together to help prepare our students for their future, no matter what it is that they want to do, and to give you just some practical ways to understand where your standards fall within these categories and how you can strategically plan your lessons with the aspects of rigor in mind. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.